so long. I wanted people to know the truth about what it's been like to be part of this family. The sheer loneliness of it. But I didn't know who I could tell. Or who I could trust. You can trust me. And I promise I will protect you every step of the way. And it was smooth sailing for Princess Diana from that point forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and I'm here with at Napping on Twitter. Joy, thanks for chatting with me today. Great to be here. On today's episode of Decoding TV, we are going to be covering Season 5, Episodes 7, 8, 9, and 10 of The Crown. That's Season 5, Episode 7, No Woman's Land. Episode 8, Gunpowder, Episode 9, Couple 31, and Episode 10, Decommissioned. This is our third and final podcast, Diving into Season 5 of The Crown, Netflix's period drama on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II and the life of the Windsors. All 10 episodes of the season are available for streaming right now. Uh, We've previously covered the first six episodes of the season in prior installments of the podcast. Uh, And I'd recommend you check those out at podcast.decodingtv.com, which is where you can find more episodes of this show. You can support this podcast and make sure we keep podcasting by becoming a paid member at DecodingTV.com, where you'll get access to ad-free episodes and early access to episodes, uh, as well as bonus episodes that we record. And uh, I also want to say that you can find Decoding TV on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, at Decoding TV. I also want to thank everyone who sent in feedback. We welcome your thoughts and opinions of all of our coverage at DecodingTV at gmail.com. Now... I want to give you all a little bit of a behind-the-scenes insight into this podcast. Decoding TV is run at this point by one person, and that is me. I'm uh, running everything, and I get some help uh, with some of the videos. Uh, uh, my editor, Kurt, does an amazing job with the videos, um, but he only does some subset of the videos. Also, um, obviously, I've worked with other folks as well. Um, Jack and Michelle and other folks in the background have, have contributed some work, but... Uh, I have I've assigned myself responsibility for putting the YouTube versions of these videos up, and I've been extremely slow at that, um, in- incomprehensibly slow at getting YouTube Ooh, versions. I don't, I don't like that. That's not growth mm-hmm. mindset. Could we think of a different reframe that's a little mm. better? Uh, the YouTube versions of these crown videos are TBD on our YouTube channel, are, are on the way at our YouTube channel at youtubecom TV. But uh, because you had other priorities. I've had other priorities, but yeah. at Joyo Napping has worn a Princess Diana themed outfit for every single one of these. And by the time you are listening to this, you should be able to wa- see at least the first one of her outfits at youtube.com slash decoding TV. So um, that I can promise because uh, that video is in the pipeline and Kurt has put it together and it looks good. Um, but anyway, uh, Joy, you've been wearing a different outfit for each of these podcasts. Uh, we're a little bit behind, but tell us about your outfit today. Well, you know, I didn't want to like break the internet with my looks and how incredible mm-hmm. they are, you know, so maybe it's good that this hasn't been on YouTube yet, you know, like yeah. let's wait for the holiday lull. Um, but this is a midnight navy blazer and a cream scoop neck shell underneath. Um, mine is not you know, bespoke cashmere the way that Diana's was. But this is what she wore for the Panorama interview with Mark. Mm, Yes. Yes. Legendary interview. 
it was the 90s. So that is why there are shoulder pads. Um, and, you know, it's actually like such a somber and sad occasion that I, I like to think more that I'm paying homage to kind of her overall rocking of the blazer throughout that decade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it looks great, Joy. So nicely done. Anyway. Thank the consignment store. Uh, and I think you had a name for this look, right? Oh, yes. It's uh, Burning Down the Beeb. Burning Down the Beeb. What the is Beeb that? is the what? nickname, is a British nickname for the BBC. Mm, mm. So I see what you're doing there. Sometimes they call it Auntie, Auntie Beeb, or Just Beeb. Well, I see what you're doing there. Diana is indeed burning it all down. The BBC, that is, as well as her relationship with Buckingham Palace. We spent the last episode contemplating the ties between the Queen's family and the Romanovs, but the question on my mind was, what's happening with Charles and Diana? In episode seven, entitled No Woman's Land, we are squarely back to the Diana and Charles storylines. It's now 1995, and to remind everyone, this is one year after the Jonathan Dimbleby interview we saw with Charles and Jonathan in episode five. That's the one that's today best remembered for Charles admitting to adultery. So Diana and Charles are separated. She's living in Kensington Palace. A BBC journalist named Martin Bashir is determined to secure an interview with Diana, even fabricating evidence to gain Diana's brother's trust and preying on Diana's sense of paranoia with conspiracy theories. Diana is increasingly isolated despite her fame and popularity, but she meets and begins secretly dating heart surgeon Hasnat Khan. And her eldest son, William, starts at Eton, so we see him having tea with Grandmama and also fielding calls from Diana. Joy, it was such a relief to me that we finally got back to what feels like the main story of The Crown Season 5. What did you think of Episode 7 overall? Well, 7 and 8 in some ways feel like companion pieces to each other. And I really, really liked both of these episodes. I really felt like this was, like Anna Cerebalus, one of the ones I felt like The Crown was going to need to nail. And this one, I think, comes the closest to bringing us inside what this must have felt like. Uh, just a really pivotal moment that has now been rehashed through two BBC inquiries, which we'll get to. Um, but not everybody knows all of those details. And so positioning us inside the sort of factional warfare with inside the BBC, to me, was like really incredible. What did you think? I agree. I really love this episode because this is like the best of the crown overall, in my opinion. I think... Um, First of all, um, what's great about this episode is it makes Martin Bashir look like a complete piece of shit, which he Martin should Bashir be made to is, look like. Is a complete piece of shit. Yes, yes. and and uh, and it uh, the the details of this have been uh, public. You know, they've been announced, but they have not been as what like millions of people will watch this episode of The Crown and they will understand how badly Diana was screwed over by the BBC, and that is like a public service i would argue right that that we have that we as a public now have like a fairly accurate rendition of what happened to between martin bashir and and princess Diana and the terrible lengths that he went to to secure this interview so um i appreciate that um and you know the way it unfolds is very much like a thriller uh, and i think it's all very well done and like uh the the next episode is also really well done um it's cuz it's basically a two-parter what I don't like as much is that this episode makes Diana look like uh, a psychotic person um, when I think she's with her acupuncturist uh, and she's hanging out with her acupuncturist and she meets Hasnat Khan 
And like Hasnacon Hasna comes out and is like, hey, so I don't think your husband's going to live. And then Diana's like, damn, that guy was hot. And it's like, what is wrong with you, Princess Diana? Like, it, just, it, it is such a terrible depiction of Princess Diana. It's just like, this is completely unrecognizable from the Princess Diana that we got from Emma Corrin in season four. Like, that Princess Diana would never have said something so cringe and terrible, you know? Um, everything else with the Hasnacon storyline is like very touching and nice, but just like her meeting him and being, it's just like, what is going on here? And I think it lends fuel to the fire of people who think that this season is very anti uh, Princess Diana, which I think uh, has a lot of merit. That that viewpoint has a lot of merit to it. So that's that one scene alone almost threatened to sour the whole episode for me, but everything else is great. That's how I feel about it. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, I do think I, I watched the episode twice and it did really stick out to me. Um, I do feel like they're highlighting some of Diana's less good moments while skipping all of her incredible moments, um, which is for me, a criticism of the entire season, not just of this mm-hmm. episode. So, um, I guess for me, it's not the single worst moment, but it's pretty close to what happened in real life. And I think they could have just scripted it a little differently to be, you know, make her look less callous. And mm-hmm. um, I do kind of come away with the same feeling that you do, which is this is, pre- or not maybe not that you do, but you said other folks have have noted that this is maybe not as pro-Diana as the prior season. Yeah. So uh, putting that very weird moment aside, uh, I really like how the episode unfolds. The pacing is really great. You you see like Martin Bashir like slowly convincing himself and all the people around him that this is a good idea. And he's like, he, the, the episode begins, if I recall correctly, with a very arresting visual image of basically Martin Bashir toiling away in the archives of the BBC. And so you get a sense of like, hey, this person doesn't live a very glamorous life. You know, this this episode is about people who don't live very glamorous lives, right? But they are, like, connected to Princess Diana in different ways. And it's like, this person doesn't live a very glamorous life. Perhaps they would like to live a glamorous life. And they are willing to go to extreme and unethical lengths to secure that glamorous life. And that that means fabricating bank statements, lying to Princess Diana and her relatives, um, and generally doing very unsavory things. So question for you, Joy. How accurate was season five, episode six of The Crown? It is brutally accurate. Um, So I mentioned that there were two inquiries at the BBC about what happened with this interview and how it was secured. Because almost immediately, the guy who had fabricated the bank statements, like the graphic designer that's shown, he never knew what it was for. So he thought he was making like a graphic that would be shown as an example, right? Yes. Uh, this is how you, this is what fabricated bank statements look like. That's how it's going to be used on the air, basically, right? <laughs> he then sees, because it doesn't have Diana's name on it or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. then sees the interview and immediately becomes very uncomfortable that maybe this is what that graphic design work was for, tries mm-hmm. to blow the whistle within the BBC, many other folks also try to like voice their qualms and 
it is basically quashed internally through a 1996 investigation. So the next year. I, I heard the guy that raised there. the the alarm was fired or left, if I recall correctly, right? Um, that guy, I believe, was fired, the graphic designer. Some other folks were like sidelined and felt retaliated against. And maybe one mm-hmm. of the things that's helpful to know about the BBC is it is... It's, it's the closest equivalent in America would be where we live is uh, to PBS, the public broadcasting service, mm-hmm. which is it's like taxpayer funded, basically very yeah. prestigious and extremely decentralized. So there's not somebody who's reviewing every single editorial decision, unlike something like Fox News, which seems editorially very centralized and is commercial. So um, it's totally possible somebody could wander off in their own little fiefdom and then try to protect that fiefdom, if that makes sense. Panorama was like the, and still is, um, like the 60 Minutes kind of like prestigious investigative news magazine show. Um, And so the investigation was... um, Basically, Martin Bashir lies <laughs> to the people who are trying to investigate internally. They never go talk to Earl Spencer. I don't believe they ever talk to the graphic designer. It, it, it's all just um, very cursory. And there's a lot of like just taking people at their word. And then they kind of wash their hands of it and they say, oh, it's it's all fine. Um, but over the years, it continues to be believed that like maybe this wasn't so great. And in 2020... So just two years ago, like the Crown season five was already wrapped on production, I think, and had, was just about to air. The Sunday season Times, four, I think, season four. Oh, season four. Yeah. Um, the Sunday Times broke a story that Martin Bashir had sort of falsified these bank statements and shown them to Earl Spencer, and all hell breaks loose. There's a second inquiry. And um, it is through that that we now understand. So they like investigate their first investigation as well as what happened with the interview itself. And in that 127-page report, which you can Google and read all of, um, pretty much that version of events is what is on the screen in this episode of The Crown and the next one. Yeah. And I feel it's horrifying what is done to Diana, in my opinion. Like it's... Probably one of not not like the worst thing you could do as a journalist, but like certainly adjacent to the worst thing you could do. Probably the worst thing you do as a, as a journalist is either like plagiarism or just completely fabricating the story. But he fabricated stuff in order to get the story in this case, um, which is still really bad. And I'm just grateful that now we know like uh, th- there is a kind of record of the truth because because for decades this was not the public record of events, right? Like this is not what people understood to be how this occurred. And in fact, when I have previously watched the Martin Bashir interview, I thought that was a pretty good interview. You know, I was like, that's a pretty, the pretty well done interview, like good questions. Um, Martin Bashir has a great voice, you know? And so I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good interview. And now like to know that he acted so wrongfully, um, I'm just grateful when something like this is corrected via a piece of pop, pop culture, like the crown. So, um, one of the other things that happens in this episode is like it, it shows how Martin Bashir's work reinforces Diana's sense of paranoia, like where her brakes tampered with or things like that. What's your take yes. on that stuff? So that is, to me, the meat of the problem. I, I, I honestly think that Diana probably would have been looking to give an interview to someone, um, whether it would have been him or someone else, like maybe yeah. similar-ish content um, would have been created. But the fact that it worsened 
her sense that she was constantly being spied on. She told multiple people in 1995 she thought her brakes had been tampered with, um, which is a, something that's depicted in The Crown. And I believe in 1996, she tells someone else, you know, she passes away in 1997 in a car accident. Um, I think in 96, she tells someone, they're going to not want me, you know, to get this, you know, to get away with um, continuing to live because Charles will not be able to remarry if I am still alive. Remember, that's like the Church of England marriage rules that we talked about last time. So one day I'll probably die in a car accident and it's just going to be made to look like, you know, could have happened to anyone when it might actually be a hit. I mean, th- those are like really upsetting things to believe might happen to you. And yeah. of course, has like spanned or spurned all these, spurred all these conspiracy theories in real life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, like, could, could the firm actually do stuff like that? Like they probably have the capability, but I, I don't know that they would really do that in modern times, but it, I, it's reasonable for her to think that that might happen. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm just like, I wonder if they would actually ever do something like that. I don't, I don't think so, but who knows? Um, no one probably knows. Anyway, in this well, episode, that's the subject of a third inquiry that happens in 2004, but we can get there next season. <laughs> Princess Diana meets Hasnat Khan, which I think is actually of like a very charming relationship. You know, it's like, wow, the most famous woman in the world dates like this kind of normal schlubby dude. Like that's like, can I, it's like, can almost I just like, like, it's like a fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes uh, about this podcast, um, you, David Chen, had to Google Kaznat Khan in real life during the show because you're like, I got to see what this guy looks like. He can't look like this. And you're like, oh, my God, he looks exactly as schlubby as this. So you're saying <laughs> I had a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of yeah, us had like, a chance. It's like literally like the plot of a movie, you know, like that, that like a, a normal everyday dude would be in a relationship with Princess Diana. But um it apparently was true, right, uh, Joy? It was, and this is also fairly faithful. Um, you know, honestly, there's so many times that the crown, the events depicted in the crown are stranger than fiction and need no embellishment, you know, for them to just stand on their own. So she really did meet him when her acupuncturist's husband needed heart surgery. He really did come out to say, it's going okay, but we got to keep operating. He really did have his name on his shoes. Um, they didn't have their first, you know, date in the cafeteria eating crisps, although I thought that was a hilarious scene and a reasonable invention. Um, But, you know, they're shown um, sort of having to keep it very quiet um, over the next, this episode and the next. And all of that happened with the wigs and the sunglasses and the sort of really having somehow a a relationship out of the public eye. Um, And I think she was really attracted to his talent and the fact that he did not feel particularly wowed by who she was, I think she was quite unused to that kind of reaction. So honestly, there's an even richer and very sweet story, I think, there. And I wish we could have gotten more of it because this is the counterfactual, like what she could have had mm-hmm. if she had not married Charles in the first place. Yeah. Maybe she would have married someone like Hasnat Khan and had a very they had this very like sweet domesticity. Um, like she would wait until all the staff had gone home and he'd like smuggle in KFC or she'd make like she'd cook a pretty simple dinner. Um, and they'd watch like, you know, soap operas and stuff. You know, it just sounds very 
like a, a life that really was so, so different from anything else she had experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I thought it was very sweet and, you know, it could have been a multi-episode arc, but um, absolutely, it, it, it's not, it doesn't really go that way. Um, anything else in the episode you want to comment on its veracity, Joy? Um, obviously, uh, we get a little bit of the William-Diana relationship. She comes off pretty badly uh, in terms of her relationship with William. Like, William doesn't like her very much, um, resents her for telling him about her relationships and things like that. It, it's it, she, she doesn't come off as a particularly good mom, I would say, which, I, as far as I understand, is not really in keeping with reality. You know, like, I don't think. Well, she comes across as having is, yeah. boundary issues, right, with her children and relying on her children to be her friends. Um, you know, by the way, in real life, I think William and Harry did meet Has Not Con. That's believed to mm-hmm. have occurred. Um, but, I mean, she dated him for two years. It's over in the blink of an eye in this show. Uh, but it was a meaningful and steady relationship that where that would have been appropriate, I think. Um, I'll just say, like, from an ethics perspective, I'm curious your take on this. I am really uncomfortable depicting someone who's 13 years old, um, who's still alive today and whose life has been so shaped by the trauma of losing his mom. There, there's something about having I, – I don't know that it adds that much to me to have William as a character at 13 yeah. in this show, The Crown – it doesn't really tell me that much new about Diana that I didn't know. And it's so conjectury about their relationship and not in a positive way, right? It's that he has to go to her rescue when she wants to go shopping. And everyone in the family seems against that, you know? Um, it's that he is her confidant. She's interrupting him at school. I, and she's showing up on the news in ways that make him really embarrassed and ashamed. I don't feel like particularly for a child character that's worth it what do you think it doesn't really bother me beyond the scope of how the crown usually bothers me in general which is a lot of these events and conversations are fabricated and a lot of these people are still alive today you know and i think that's inherently problematic so the idea that oh it's it happens to be a kid um it doesn't it you know it, it doesn't add that much incremental trouble troubling to me if that makes any sense i i will say that you know what i am more concerned with is less than that it's depicting a kid is like how accurate is this depiction because my sense is that william and harry both have very fond feelings about their mom and they would probably be pretty upset and mortified that the depiction went down like this you know um i don't so, think I don't know. it's I mean, I think actually this is part of my problem is that because they're children, there's less written about this time. They certainly haven't spoken yeah. about it. And to the extent they could, I am not a reliable narrator of what I was like at 13. I'm just not mm-hmm. because no, no one is. And so um, I, it feels completely unnecessary to me. And William is not a super well-developed character this season. I, I agree with you. It's not worth, you know, the juice is not worth the squeeze for all the ethical issues that it brings up. So Yeah, and where's um, my Fergie coverage that I wanted? The other thing that we I just want to mention... less before, William and more Fergie, sorry, is what I meant. Yes. Uh, the other thing is, that I just want to mention before we move on to episode eight is that, like, what this episode does a great job of capturing is how awful Martin Bashir is because of, like, basically how he turned Diana's closest friend, like, Diana against her closest confidants. Like, people who, like, she actually trusted in a time when she really needed people to trust. Like, he lied and basically are like, all these people are against you. 
So like and, Patrick Jeffson, her private secretary, yeah, um, is probably the key one there. Like uh, her brother and Diana had like a complicated relationship right. so it wasn't right. like he was her bestie um yeah and in some ways like staff was a lot of who she relied on day to day um i would so, just yeah, be so furious like I, I just i'm putting myself in diana's shoes i would just be so furious at anyone that did this to me you know and um and i'm sad that diana never got that reckoning while she was alive you know so yeah kind anyway. of the opposite but I, I think we'll get into that maybe a little bit more in the next episode since this is kind of a two-hander shall we discuss episode eight then yes great um yeah so uh it's kind of a it's as we said it's kind of a two-parter um and uh episode eight is like the second half of this story i think episode eight is also very good like this whole saga is really well done um and in episode eight entitled gunpowder we shift focus to the bbc itself we meet marmaduke hussey for the first time who is chairman of the board of governors of the BBC and a loyal monarchist. Uh, and I do, I want to point out that he is, his uh, nickname is Duke, but I don't know if he is actually a Duke. Dukey. It's just Duke. He's, he's, he, yeah. he's not a Duke and it's because his name is Marmaduke. That's why he's called Duke. Okay. He's so loyal that his wife, Sarah, I'm sorry, Susan Hussey is queen Elizabeth's most senior lady in waiting. We've seen her a few times before during the season, and we will definitely need to talk about her in real life in 2022 because as of this recording she has just been in the news and so we'll talk about that in a little bit um but we meet john burt the bbc director general who is set up as a foil to marmaduke hussey he is in charge of all the editorial decisions and he wants to modernize to compete with cable martin bashir manages to land the interview of a lifetime setting off a cloak and dagger operation to get the footage edit it and have it approved internally without news leaking inside the bbc itself so john burt approves it but also keeps it from getting to Marmaduke Hussey. In the meantime, at William's suggestion, the royal castles uh, get satellite television because as the queen says, even the televisions are metaphors in this place. I, for one, did not think we'd see Elvira or Beavis and Butthead on the crown, but here we are. William gets an awkward phone call from Diana in which she talks about Hasnot Khan. He suggests some more healthier boundaries. He also conveniently gets a lesson on Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot of 1605. As we count down to the interview airing, Diana personally warns the Queen. In another bout of revisionist history, the Queen says, all any of us want, Diana, is for you to be happy and one day for you to be our next Queen. End quote. She and Philip then go to see a variety show. So we see the Diana interview and the reactions to it intercut with a moody rendition of One Night Only from Dreamgirls. Classic. So that's episode eight. That's what happens in the episode. And we already talked a little bit about the William stuff. I really like this episode, but I, I think the message of it is a little interesting, right? Because basically, like all the Cloak and Dagger stuff with Martin Bashir, that's all like very exciting. That's like really well done. And the idea that they like smuggled in all the equipment is just like, you know, um, a content creator such as myself would only dream of being able to to execute and pull, you know, pull off something like that off. The the thesis that this episode is taking is kind of interesting, right? Because the idea is that Martin Bashir and this other guy, uh, John Burt, they want to like do this cool tabloidy exploitative thing with Princess Diana. And Marmaduke Ducussi is like, no, we must let's, let's do something to thank the Royals, right? That's what he wants. And, the the problem is that John Burt and Martin Bashir have done something horrible to get the thing, and it's going to it, it is 
a stain on the BBC that will not probably will never be wiped away because of how awful it is. Um, so it's almost positioning Marmaduke Hussey as like the correct party. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like saying Marmaduke Hussey should have gotten his way because then they wouldn't have been in this horrifying mess, uh, that they, that they ended up in. Right. Um, when in fact the crown itself is, I would argue just as sensationalistic as an exploitative in many, many ways. Um, they, they are not as like outright unethical as Martin Bashir, but like, it is a show that just completely fabricates things for about people that are still alive in order to get headlines, generate viewership, make a more interesting story. So I just think it's interesting that like, I, I guess, you know, everyone sucks is, is probably the most charitable way I, I could refer to it. John Burt, um, uh, Martin Bashir and Marbert Ducasse, they're all terrible. Maybe, maybe that's the point of the episode. Uh, do, do you understand? Are you following kind of my, my chain, chain of logic here about like, what the show's trying to say about the media, basically. I am following the chain of logic. It's interesting. You know, I watch this show with such a keen eye toward did that happen or did that not happen that sometimes it's hard for me to take a step back and say, what is the story being told? Yeah. I took it differently. Um, I saw it as there is an inexorable tide toward more sensationalism as evidenced by the hundreds of channels of satellite TV that the queen gets lost in, mm, you yeah, know, yeah. she's trying to find her racing, that yeah. it's inexorable, that pull. And that the BBC is still showing people singing choir, you know, no ads and just mm -hmm. uh, really boring stuff. Um, and so the BBC would, gets pulled in by that, by that modern trend as well, basically, right? Yes, because their version of it isn't necessarily celebrity tittle-tattle it ends up that they have an incredible news story as well. There, there's even a discussion of it, like how is getting a Princess Diana interview right for Panorama, you know? Um, and she, Diana says, I could go to Oprah Winfrey. I could go to Barbara Walters. Those are people who are known, obviously, in America for celebrity interviews. But she wants the news focus, the seriousness of purpose of the BBC and Panorama behind her. And that's part of why she chooses that venue. And she turns down, A, a lot of money, and B, much more famous interviewers. Like, you can totally picture it in retrospect that it would have been Barbara Walters or Oprah Winfrey when she says those names out loud. Um, instead of, you know, this not even most famous person on Panorama, you know, like mm -hmm. staff journalist uh, to do the interview with. So I viewed it more as for Martin Bashir to compete as the BBC is trying to compete against this backdrop, there is going to be a push toward landing the big interview, getting the big name, et cetera. And people's boundaries, if they're not strong from an ethical perspective, are going to get eroded and eroded and eroded. Yeah. Fair enough. And then she Fair gets enough. ensnared in that, right? Like, I think you, you could actually yeah. tell an identical story about the invasion of her privacy from tabloid photographers. Yeah. Um, same thing's going to happen next season, you know, when she... So so then it is what I said at the end, which is, like, basically everyone sucks. Like, the idea... Like, it's not like Marmaduke's vision of the future of uh, TV is like, great either, right? So... Um, I think it, if it's just he had kind of gotten like... the interview without falsifying the receipts, then it might have been more okay for me. And right. Then that it might have been... 
it, it would have been a very different tone. It would have been like, hey, Martin Bashir is pushing the BBC, you know, it's, he's helping the BBC to progress into the 20th century, basically. You know, like, it would have been a very different tone. But because he did, you know, he did all the terrible things, it's like, oh, modernity is bad in some ways. You know, I, I don't know. Anyway. Um, well, um, if you recall, there's this moment, incredible moment, where they're editing, they're viewing the tape in this yeah. hotel in Eastbourne, which is like down by the sea near Brighton, like south of London. Um, it's, just, and- it's a really cool set. I love the setup and like the code words and like, it's very like exhilarating from like, a, like you know, they're t- trying to tell the story perspective. I mean, everything he's doing is shitty and wrong, but it's like. It's done really. I don't think it's shitty and wrong. I think what Martin Bashir did to secure the interview is shitty and wrong. But keeping it from Armaduke Hussey, I'm not sure that is totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm saying, I'm saying like, but for me, it's like poisoned because, you know, everything after the point when he secures the interview is poisoned because of the way he, uh, but, you know, uh, but yes, keeping it from Armaduke Hussey, being all secretive, like, it's just like, you know, cool cloak and dagger thriller stuff that I enjoy. Even as I recognize that Martin Bashir did a terrible thing. So anyway, well, all this ahead. really happened. They really edited in a hotel, like, you know, far from London um, in Eastbourne. And, um, you know, the, the different sort of seaside towns of Britain have these like piers with these like, yeah, it, it's a very signature look, these kind of pavilions at the end of them. And there's this shot of John Burt walking up and down the beach, you know, next to one of these and saying to Martin Bashir, Having he has seen the footage and he realizes how incendiary he, it is, he's like, "Yeah, promise me I'm not going to regret this." Mm-hmm. And it's you feel the whole universe in that moment. Yeah, it's great, and it's like if if Martin Bashir hadn't been so sketchy in securing the interview, he probably wouldn't have regretted it. You know, I don't know if John Bird's still alive today, but anyway, I think John Bird is alive. Martin Bashir, um, well, we can talk about what happens to him, but he's yeah, still alive. Yeah. So anyway, the interview comes out. Um, it's all pretty accurate the way it, it played out. Uh, they tweak the language a little bit, right? Um, but, but you know, honestly, the, yeah. I don't think it's a big deal. Like if you read the transcript and you read the, you see the crown version, like some words are paraphrased, but I don't feel like it really changes the meaning. Mm-hmm. And anything else about the the verisimilitude in this episode you want to mention, Joy? Yeah, um, Diana did not go warn the queen. <laughs> Um, so she notified the queen via fam, you know, via like internal courtiers, you know, courtiers, however you say that word. Um, and, you know, the royal family reaction was pretty terrible. Um, and they basically thought she was crazy. You have to understand, like, I've mentioned before that the queen has never given an interview or never gave an interview in her entire reign, print or television or radio or whatever. This is such a scripted family. As a result, Diana is constantly being photographed without necessarily her permission or she's at like a public event. Um, You know, her looks, uh, what was it like as she was dropping off the kids? You know, what are her fashion choices? But people don't know what her voice sounds like. They have basically hardly ever heard her speak. So to hear her speak for an hour was so much more access than anyone expected. And I think many people did not expect that she would be so frank, certainly, but also so disarming and come across as just a really mature, relatable person. 
anybody can go back and watch this footage and I would encourage you to do it. Um, you know, she's, I don't know if I'd encourage you given William's statements on the footage, but you know, yeah, yeah. It's possible to access it. Um, you know, it ends up landing like with such force with the public and connecting with them in a genuine way. And then at the same time, the reaction within the royal family and royal circles is that they think she's actually out of her mind because you would never want to reveal this much about yourself. They literally Mm -hmm. think she's like mentally ill, unstable, Mm -hmm. and like needs to be hospitalized, which Mm -hmm. I just think is an interesting dichotomy. Well, it's certainly very interesting given that today you can open up TikTok and somebody's telling you about, you know, uh, their entire life story, you know, like it, it, it's not a sentiment that we would recognize today as being unbalanced. It's something that a lot of people do. No, today, it's right? actually the yeah. sort of normal and expected amount of access that we would think exactly that yeah. there is. But, you know, I did want to mention, and you, you um, alluded to this, that after the 2021 statement or a report, which was called the Dyson Report, which was the second BBC investigation into its earlier shitty investigation into the Martin Bashir. Like, how did he secure this interview? Um, Prince William issued a statement, and I thought it was really, really powerful. Often these statements just feel like they come from a machine, and you really don't have any sense of the person behind it. But if it's okay, I actually think because it's not it's not possible to insert a statement from 25 years in the future into the show. Like, could I, could I read it? Yeah, sure. So this is uh, Prince William's 2021 statement after the Dyson report revealing the malfeasance on the part of Martin Bashir to obtain this BBC interview. Go ahead. Yeah. And this is what you're alluding to about Panorama and like whether people should go look at this footage. Um, It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full, which are extremely concerning. The BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fuels and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the program, and were invasive in their reporting to the media and covered up what they knew from their internal investigation. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. So he's saying the content changed because of how the interview was gotten. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia, and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. Oh, I feel like I'm choking up a little bit. But what saddens me most is that if the BBC had properly investigated the complaints and concerns first raised in 1995, my mother would have known that she had been deceived. She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC who looked the other way rather than asking the tough questions. It is my firm view that this panorama program holds no legitimacy and should never be aired again. It effectively established a false narrative which, for over a quarter of a century, has been commercialized by the BBC and others. This settled narrative now needs to be addressed by by the BBC and anyone else who has written or intends to write about these events. In an era of fake news, public service broadcasting and a free press have never been more important. These failings identified by investigative journalists not only let my mother down and my family down, they let the public down too. End quote. It's a damning assessment of the Martin Bashir interview. And I mean, he's basically saying- 
right? Yeah, the human cost. Yeah. And he's basically saying, like, the interview is invalid. Like, I award you no points. Like, there's nothing redeemable about the interview, um, which is, I think, probably stronger than many people would think. Because it seems like, yes, even if she was lied to, she's probably still saying some things that are true uh, or accurate in the interview. But, um, But I think it's unquestionable that the way in which the interview was obtained shaped the interview itself. And uh, I'm glad you pulled this report out. And I think people should know that that's how Prince William feels about it because it's, uh, it's really upsetting. You know, it's, it's everything. You in know, is probably and, accurate. And, and you're right. And you're right. They're like, they, they generally don't make statements this damning in general, right? The Royal generally personal, don't say something. Right. Like that. He's saying, I do remember her being paranoid in her final years. That is so painful to know that like somebody who was 13 years old, yeah. You know, his final couple of years with his mom or like that she was really unwell. Um, it also implicates the entire BBC, which is uh, ironic considering that one of their only uh, only reasons that someone like Diana might want to have an interview with them at all is because of how honorable and journalistically rigorous they are. Like that's one explicitly discussed in these episodes. Yeah. Um, and he, he mentions it's been commercialized by the BBC and others. So what that is, is like. It'll be the 10-year anniversary of the interview, and they'll air a special that's like, it's the 10-year 10 anniversary of the interview. Here's a look inside how this great scoop was gotten without acknowledging any of the problems. Right. Well, they, that's because I don't think the problems were like widely known until- um, I think they knew the internally, recent- and they kept putting mm. their foot on the gas, and that is really, really gross. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe everybody does suck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway- uh, it, it, it we're 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 witnessing what what's fascinating is like we're witnessing you know a journalistic crime take place throughout the course of these two episodes uh and the results are still reverberating to this day so it makes right. a really so compelling we're so watching, close yeah. to current day that it's like we're flipping back and forth between things that occurred during the show uh, the crown airing and the events that are depicted well speaking of events that are occurring today Susan Hussey has been in the news recently. She is, again, Marmaduke's wife uh, and a lady-in-waiting. And she, uh, Marmaduke is kind of the older monarchist, you know, monarchy loyal person in the show. And he goes up against uh, John Burt. Anyway, Susan Hussey's in the news. Uh, why is she in the news, Joy? And maybe explain what a lady-in-waiting is before I we proceed. I was just about to ask you, what do you think a lady-in-waiting does? Uh, well, what I understand from you telling me is that she's the person who, like, educates royals on how to be a royal, right? Like, she's one of the people, you know, like, a lady-in-waiting is, like, was depicted in episode uh, season four, sort of telling Diana how the royal family works and when you should curtsy and when and in what order you should curtsy and things like that. So um, a lot of reverence for royalty. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. I don't think I did a good job explaining it before okay. to you offhandedly. Okay. So um, when you're a very senior royal, you have a small group of people that are called ladies in waiting. Uh, well, I think when you're female, I don't know what the corollary is if you're male um the ladies in waiting like the most senior one is called the woman of the bedchamber. so that should give you a sense of how archaic this idea is so back in the day like victorian era maybe um this person would have like 
helped you get dressed. Now, don't you have a lady's maid who's like somebody who was below stairs who would help you do that? Maybe. But then if the woman of the bedchamber comes in, she like pulls rank on you and then she helps the queen get dressed. And so um, there's this whole like parallel structure of power and hierarchy within the household. And the ladies in waiting are way up at the top. They are not like hired help from you know, like a an ad you place in the newspaper. They are people who are themselves nobility. So you need to be at about the level of an earl or maybe um, like Susan Hussey is the daughter of an earl. Um, and whew, if you're going to bear with me just for a second for this walk down memory lane, in season four of The Crown, we see Diana, as you said, get assigned a lady in waiting to help her you know, do learn the ways of the palace. Well, other things that the ladies in waiting do are attend royal events as like room filler, you know, to like help have more of the royal folks, room meets. You know, who can, that is what yeah. it is called by Armando Yanucci. Um, but you know, basically more of a delegation so that it's not like 60 people are trying to meet just one person. Um, they might actually write correspondence on behalf of the queen. Um, let's say that there's a funeral and the queen can't go, uh, or it's frankly a person who's not important enough for the queen to go, but they want to acknowledge that person. Well, they'll send like a lady in waiting. So it's kind of like a deputized role. And at this point, it's completely like ceremonial. There's no helping anybody get dressed. Well, um, the person we see in season four of The Crown who's assigned to do that job, they make it Lady Fomoy, who is Diana's grandmother. But in real life, it was Susan Hussey. Diana's grandmother? Diana's grandmother, Isn't it... Lady Fomoy. Okay. All right. Yes, Francis Shane. But in real life, it was Susan Hussey. It was, it was actually Susan Hussey. And Diana... Mar- Marmaduke's wife... Marmaduke being the guy Diana who was the Diana hated yeah. her. She was a lady-in-waiting yeah. to Queen Elizabeth. So... Fast forward 20, 30 years, Meghan Markle, American starlet, is going to get married to Harry, doesn't know anything about, really, truly does not know anything about the institution she is getting married into. Who does Queen Elizabeth send to help Meghan Markle? Because it went so well the first time, she sends Susan Hussey. Fast forward a few more years to now. Um, Queen Elizabeth has passed away. And... Basically, Camilla becomes the queen, queen consort, and she just rolls all those ladies-in-waiting right on over to her staff. So all the same ladies-in-waiting are there. They're all, like, pretty – I'm not trying to be ageist, but they're they're well-established and have long histories. Um, as a result, even though it's the same person who helped Diana back then and then helped Megan, which I think we all know how well that went um, – very recently, this person is now helping Camilla be queen. And very recently, she was in the news, as in in the past few days, because um, she said some things um, that went over quite poorly at an event that Camilla was hosting to try to raise awareness about domestic violence in the UK. And unfortunately, uh, Susan Hussey was basically forced to resign. Yeah. I don't so, know if I want to get into what she said, but it's no, out there. No, let's, let's, yeah. Um, but suffice to say, Susan Hussey, who is depicted multiple times in The Crown season five and earlier, and theoretically earlier, even though it's not really the same character, but in real life it was, um, 
She's unfortunately Unce- the main character of the week when it comes to the royals yes. for these unceremoniously removed remarks. Yeah, yeah, unceremoniously removed for f- fairly insensitive comments she made at an event. And if you want to learn more, just Google Susan Hussey. But um, pretty amazing, pretty amazing that uh, people on the show are still making news and making waves in real life. So and even like anyway. still alive, right? I, I don't know. It, it, it's yeah. starting to feel like very, very fresh and recent. The only other thing about episode seven I want to mention is the conversation or between her and the queen. Eight. I'm sorry, episode eight um, is the conversation between Princess Diana and the queen. Um, uh, if you watched this scene in isolation, the queen would seem pretty reasonable. But what you don't understand from this episode alone is that Princess Diana has been treated very poorly, ignored, gaslit. Um, and so when the queen says all any of us want Diana is for you to be happy and one day for you to be our next queen, she's basically gaslighting Diana in that scene. So I think that, well, I I guess, I guess she does want her to be happy, but she's not willing to do anything necessary to make that happen. Right. Right. I feel Um, like there's an unspoken clause at the end, which is, and none of us to have to change a thing or lift a finger. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and so, so I understand like a, a lot of complaints have been like, oh yeah, this makes, you know, Diana look really bad, uh, but it's like, yeah, but I think you need to bring in the context that the queen is full of shit in that scene. Um, but it, it is very like, I do think you kind of understand it from the perspective of the queen, the sense that Diana has already done this book that's rocked everyone's world. And then now she's going to do an interview. And it's like, come on, Diana, are you really going to just keep complaining all the time? Like that's, that's the perspective that the show almost seems to be taking. Um, when in fact, you know, looking back with the fullness of time, it does feel like Diana's complaints are quite reasonable. So, or, or, or you know, her, well, her her troubles were quite reasonable. Anyway, go ahead. I feel like um, at the end of that scene, uh, the queen says, so I suppose it's too late to stop this interview. And Diana says, yes. And it almost implies that Diana regrets it after this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's between when it was taped and when it airs. Right, because it will it will draw a lot of attention for her and her family, and that's like a challenge for William. Uh, the show seems to make it seem. Yes, and uh, maybe you know she was just waiting to hear that all anyone wanted was for her to be happy mm. quietly and with no effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that's episode eight of season five of The Crown. You know, I will say this set of episodes made me miss. Some of my favorite stuff from the first two seasons of The Crown um, is the queen having to digest like bad news about the family or sometimes positive news, mostly bad. And she doesn't necessarily go into a speech or give a monologue or have a back and forth, but she'll get it from, you know, her staff. And then, you know, you'll just see her visually like react. Um, And I wish in some ways that they had handled it this whole season um, differently where we see her in real life. Apparently she was a bit of a softy. So if you got her one-on-one, she might actually cave to you. And knowing that she would therefore put kind of a wall of AIDS between you and her. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wish we'd seen more of the palace internal staff workings. I think that could have been just as powerful in its own way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, those are our thoughts on episode eight of the crown season five. Uh, you know, I was talking earlier, Joy, about how uh, I really enjoy the kind of 
secretive cloak and dagger stuff in the show and how thrilling it is, you could almost say it's electrifying. And I bring that up because this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by Nissan. As a pioneer in the electric vehicle space, Nissan is always looking for ways to deliver new meaningful technologies to EV owners. After all, Nissan's been making EVs since 1947. And their EVs have now traveled 8 billion miles by Nissan Leaf owners since 2010. 8 billion miles, which is the equivalent of driving to Pluto and back. Do you think that's electrifying? One of their EVs trekked all the way to the North Pole. And Nissan even tests their EV technology on the Formula E racetrack. But Nissan knows that you don't just get an EV for the E. You get a Nissan EV because it makes you you feel electric. Because it sparks your imagination. It ignites something within you. It pins you to your seat. It takes your breath away. At least that's what Nissan thinks about when designing their EVs like the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. It's about creating a thrilling design that electrifies its customers. I love Nissan's focus on creating a thrilling drive and an electrifying life. In today's world, it's so important to look around you, pay attention, and look for all the tiny ways that life can electrify you. Like in the case of this episode, Season 5, Episode 8 of The Crown, what it is like to secretly put together one of the most explosive interviews of all time and edit it in a seaside town hoping that your boss will never get wind of what's going on. Anyway. That's why I want to mention that Nissan is the sponsor of this episode of Decoding TV. Nissan EVs that electrify. Let's move on to episode nine, Joy. Episode nine is entitled Couple 31. Following the Panorama interview, the Queen grants permission to Charles and Diana to divorce. Everyone tries to cope with the fallout. Diana with her therapist, Camilla with a new PR strategist. The lawyers start to wrangle over the divorce timing and settlement. And then the queen asks John Major, the prime minister, to mediate the divorce. Post-divorce at Kensington Palace, Diana and Charles share some scrambled eggs and a few warm words and then some terrible words. We see all this intercut with vignettes of couples presenting why they should be allowed to divorce, underlining that at the, at the end of the day, this is just another couple who had dreams that crashed into reality. On July 15th, 1996, they are the 31st couple whose petition for divorce is heard. So, Joy, what did you think of this episode? And, and let's start by asking, what did you think of the little framing device of we're watching all these couples talk about why they're getting divorced? For me, this was another classic episode of The Crown. Like, yes, there are moments that are a little heavy-handed or overwritten, but I was thrilled to finally see some ordinary people from the UK, which really puts into stark relief like how strange the moors are of the folks who are living inside Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace and, you know, the other castles. Um, So I'm not sure that emotionally like those vignettes connected with me as much as they were supposed to but it really just felt from a sort of quasi sociological perspective really helpful to ground this divorce Mm -hmm. in other people have money problems other people have cheating problems other people have the love just die there's so many reasons that people get divorced and this was just a marriage that dragged out far longer than you know the love lasted yeah um i usually don't like that kind of stuff in general like when it's like oh look we're we're talking to real people and it always just rips me out of the reality of the show of like oh now it's a documentary all of a sudden but what so i I did think the couple stuff was overwritten because like all these situations are like 
you know, I'm working too much. I'm driving my truck too much. And, you know, you go out partying too much. And it's like, okay, all right. These, I don't actually think anyone would talk like this. But um, what I did appreciate about those scenes is um, the performances I thought were very naturalistic. Like, usually they're very theatrical. They're very like, you know, I hate him so much. And, you know, it's like, okay, like, but they're very like, oh, these, these performances feel very authentic to me. So I liked that part of it. I do think that, um, this episode, in very heavy-handed way, tries to kind of uh, establish the grand tragedy that is this marriage. That you know, it shows the archival footage of like millions of people just you know investing in the, this fairy tale romance of this love together, and how at the end of the day, it's like basically is resolved in a sterile courtroom, right? And how like how ignominious that end is. It's it's trying to like give you the vast sweep. Of that marriage, a marriage a wedding, by the way, that we didn't even see in season four when it actually happened. Uh, so it was a little weird. Uh, they they wanted to save money in season four by by not showing the actual wedding. But anyway, um, so I would say it was a, a bit of a mixed bag, but I appreciated what it was trying to do. Um, Can I just overall, respond to yeah. that a little? Like, I think that I agree with you. It, it's not always an effective device for me in other shows, but in this show, when we suddenly are following somebody who's printing a newspaper, delivering milk, or getting their teeth filled, or whatever it is, like I actually find it quite helpful to remind us of the context of where we are in time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so yeah. I have been dying for more diversity in the show of lived experiences, but also like the types of people on screen. And so this was a way to, I think, bring in a little bit of that. Putting that aside, though, I would agree. Like, I, I think this is a pretty great episode of The Crown. Like, the conversation between Diana and Prince Charles is very likely invented, you know. But um, it kind of it kind of lives up to the promise of what a show like this could do, which is like, okay, it, it does what like Annis Horribilis didn't do, in my opinion, right? Which is like, hey, these two people are going through this monumental event. Like what it what what would their conversation be like? You know, what are all the positives and negatives of of how that would play out? And uh TV shows have depicted divorces happening many times. Um probably one of my favorite instances is, is the the Sopranos. I think it's season 4 an episode called White Caps that has like Tony and Carmela like in a screaming match and um, and there's different ways that TV shows can play it out. And I thought the way it did it in this episode was like fairly subtle. You know, it's just them eating eggs and having a conversation, reflecting on the positives, negatives. It's pretty theatrical, but overall, I think it worked for me. Any thoughts, Joy? Well, I mean, I think it's a pure fantasy that this ever yeah. occurred, certainly in this way. But otherwise, they're very rarely in the same place. And they're not really exchanging civil words to each other. You know, maybe William is signing the sort of book at Eton. I don't know if you remember when they drop him off. And then Mm -hmm. Charles pulls Diana aside and says, you're smothering him. And she says mothering. But you know, like, we don't have like a full conversation where they talk about the issues Mm -hmm. at all this season. They're living apart. They can barely stand to be around each other. He's often at Highgrove, you know, like even when they were married, they weren't necessarily physically in the same place a lot. So yeah. I think- Which is as, very different than season four when they interacted frequently, I, I feel like. And I, I think they did live together in more of a meaningful way. Um, so as a dramatic device to get them together, 
to have their version of the conversation that the other divorced couples or divorcing couples are having throughout this. I, I actually thought it was quite lovely. Um, it doesn't lose any power for me for being a device, you know, or an invention because, mm-hmm. you know, the the feeling I get of the other couples is that they're in differing stages of grief. Some of them are more accepting that the marriage is over. Some are really wanting it and some are not. But you can't help but have these postmortem kind of thoughts, I think, if even if you're not even getting divorced, if you're having like a serious breakup, you know, like you end up going through like, oh, were there good times? Were there not? Like you're turning over the stories you tell yourself in your head. And Mm -hmm. there is a version of that of like, was I really that bad to you? You know, like you said that thing. And I, I, I really, it felt very emotionally honest of just two people going through this kind of thing. Um, I would so agree. I, I, would agree. I really, it really worked for me. And of course you have two yeah. amazing actors and you want to see them together. So like, otherwise we wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but you know what didn't feel emotionally honest? The idea that John Major uh, adjudicated the divorce. Like I, I, when I was watching, I was like, this seems on its face like a ridiculous plot line. And in fact, we looked it up and it did, did nothing close it to it very happened, much right? did not happen it struck me yeah. as absurd as well um and you know the reason given within the text of the crown why me is uh well you've done such good work with northern ireland <laughs> <laughs> another famous tractable dispute <laughs> yes yes i mean northern uh, now that he's solved northern ireland which I don't think it was solved back then, by the way, if if I recall correctly. Is it solved at this point? Anyway. Uh, the Good Friday Accord. I'd have to look up the date. I am not yeah. going to mess this up. Yeah. Um, but now that that's solved, um, yeah, the Good Friday Accord was uh, ni- April of 1998. Okay. So. No one come at us, please, for our lack of knowledge of the dispute. Um in Northern Ireland. But uh, Tony Blair was an original signatory of it. So anyway. Um, well, you know, what po- really po- frustrated being, me. The whole, thing, the whole thing was absurd on its face. and Ridiculous. Yeah. And it, it frustrated me because there is actually like a really actually interesting back and forth about how they get to this divorce settlement. And we even have the actors cast. We see the lawyers on each side. And, you know, I just wish they had gotten into a little bit more of that instead. I agree. Uh, it's it was very very silly, and <laughs> it's it reminds me of like it, 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 what it feels like. It's like this show is running out of things for John Major to do. So they're like, okay, how can we like how can we like plug how can we get John Major back into the mix? You know, like he's not doing enough stuff this season. We got to get him into the mix somehow. Ooh, maybe he's the person that adjudicate. It's like this is so stupid. Like. Reminder, it, it, this job I, was previously I, I, held by Margaret Thatcher. Do you think that we could have had the character of Margaret Thatcher adjudicate this divorce? Like, there is no effing way the prime minister does this. I award this plotline no points. It, everyone is dumber for having watched this. And may God have mercy on the soul of the person who wrote this. Okay. Uh, the other stuff that happens is the Camilla stuff. So Camilla starts, like, getting a spin doctor and trying to, like, take her... Image, her public image into her own hands and starts to be like proactive about it, right? Um, so 
What did you think about Camilla? She she is made out to be, in my opinion, quite a sympathetic character in the show, right? Um, what did you Camilla think of the Camilla is very of- sympathetic, with one large exception, which is that she ruined someone else's marriage uh, pretty viciously. Um, uh-huh. So what I found odd was that they basically imply that Charles doesn't want to pay Diana much. And what leads to him reaching the settlement is Camilla and the PR, like spin doctor saying, you really need to get this done so that Camilla can move on with rehabbing her reputation and maybe even one day being the Q word queen. This does not actually make any uh, yes like camille has been on a long campaign to rehab her image i i'm sure she's had support i know she's had support along the way professionally um but they weren't even allowed to marry unless again the wife was had passed away you know for another nine ten years so it, it doesn't i feel like they've collapsed a lot of stuff together in order to make like one potent motivation which is like pay off diana so you can have camilla um and in fact, the problem was literally just the amount of money. Like, they're rich, but they're not that liquid. And Charles specifically at the time is is rich, but isn't – they throw out this sum, 35 million pounds. I don't even know if he could have come up with 35 million pounds in cash as a lump sum. Maybe. I, I don't think I know enough to say that for sure. But that would have been a giant – chunk of money for this family, mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. him specifically. Like most of the money is held by his mom. So uh, it is reported that uh, Diana got the final settlement amount of 17 million pounds, which is noted here um, and in the show. And the reason she came up with that figure is she said, I've declined police protection because I think the police are spying on me. I'm going to have to pay for my own security and my own whole like lifestyle i'm 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 used to having tons of acupuncturists and tarot card readings and you know like whatever else like just services hair services styling whatever um and i'm gonna need that probably for the rest of my life and this is the number they came up with which is what that would cost and so i don't think she's even necessarily just trying to extract the maximum amount but the amount is so large that it is really difficult i think for them to come up with easily so in the end you know charles blinks because they both do a cat and game cat and mouse game of like dragging out the negotiation um Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's because camilla was like please get on with it so that you can marry me right right um do you have any other things to talk about with the depiction of Camilla in the show? Cause I, I just feel like you've been quite negative on Camilla in real life. And I don't know that that's come across in the podcast yet. And I don't know if you want it to come across. I just think this show is firmly in the, is telling one story, which is that Camilla and Charles are start cross lovers by circumstance, keeping them apart, that they were constant to each other throughout and it was really just so terribly unfortunate that Charles was forced by his parents to marry Diana instead. I think it's so much more complicated than that. And I think that there have been many times that Camilla has maneuvered and to just sort of stay in the game. She has enormous financial incentives to do so. Her house, you know, after she and Andrew Parker Bowles divorced, she was not left with very much. Um, and so, 
her life received like massive upgrades because like Philip would pay to or not Philip Charles would pay for gardening and cooks and security and you know stuff you know and services for her to be able to host him quote unquote even though she was just um his mistress at the time and this went on for years and i i just feel like they have a very one dimensional view of camilla that doesn't leave room for any any additional space that she might have been callous to someone else not cared whether mm. that person stayed married um and maybe didn't think about the consequences to the children you know we will we will probably never know because camilla is actually quite tight-lipped she's very private yeah. Um, just like Hasnat yeah. Khan has never spoken. Like he, he spoke very briefly because he was required to, like at a inquest kind of thing. And he it, it just he moved to Pakistan and he kind of lives his life. And that's why we don't know about their affair very much, as opposed to like some of the other people Diana was with, like have written tell-all memoirs. Um, but even on the face of it, I think. Um, I don't get a sense of great respect from Camilla for um, the actual other humans mm -hmm. other than Charles. And that yeah. I, I can't uh, get excited about a rehab campaign for her that is actually being done through this show as well as through the spin doctor she hires. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a scene in this episode where Camilla and Diana, I'm sorry, um, Charles and Diana are arguing and, Charles says, can we for once use her, her name, you know, and then forces Diana to say Camilla. And it's a way of giving her dignity, basically. And I think we are supposed to read it as like, hey, please respect Charles's mistress, you know, like in, in an unironic, like, hey, like, you know, they were torn apart by circumstance kind of way. Well, um, maybe that at that point, that you, you know, the marriage is dead, you know, and maybe they yeah. really are, you know, fully in yeah. love and, you know, what, but like so much has happened before them that never gets accounted for. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I struggle because um, Camilla marries Charles under the, in 2005-ish, um, under these new rules that you can now remarry with the Church of England, if you're, even if your spouse has not passed away. They get married in sort of a quiet civil ceremony. I think if he had remarried her under the old rules, it just would have felt so distasteful because of the way that Princess Diana died, right? But the whole time Camilla's been saying, oh, I'm never going to marry Charles. Oh, I'm never going to become a fish, you know, the wife. I'm never, she, she keeps stating like how low her, low she's setting her sights. I'll never be queen. But like right before the Queen Elizabeth dies, she says, when I die, Charles will be king and Camilla won't be a princess. She will be queen consort. And it's just amazing to me that this has occurred without her ever I guess we're just all supposed to think that like the passage of time heals all wounds or if she holds enough domestic violence you know awareness sessions that like it's okay and it, it just feels very uncomfortable to me mm -hmm. because the person who was cheated on is a person who was hounded to her death and and paranoid and lonely partly because of of you know the specific behaviors that enabled the affair, you know, that their friends concealed the affair from Diana, that they 
hid Camilla and Charles at their country houses, you know, and arranged for them to be away for weekends. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see how we're supposed to forget that all that happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, episode nine of The Crown of season five, what we're talking about. Uh, the episode entitled Couple 31. Anything else about this episode? There is a little uh, wee thing. Yeah. So Diana we actually therapist, see right? Diana talking to her therapist. And we saw this at the season four as well. And I wondered if we were going to get into it. Everybody was selling Diana out. So I mentioned like um, one of her, uh, the people she had an affair with, um, who was like kind of the boys writing instructor. Um Rit wrote some tell-all memoirs, but um, people were leaking constantly. So her therapist was selling her story weekly to newspaper for, I think it was like 500 pounds or a thousand pounds a week, AKA Mm. not that much money to grotesquely violate somebody's privacy who is seeing you under the auspices of medical care. It's just so gross to me. And so they don't mention it in the show, but it really does feel to me like her paranoia was extremely well-founded. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. Overall, a good episode other than the Camilla rehab. Uh, but and that's, seven, yeah. eight, and nine, these three episodes in a row happen relatively sequentially in time. And it's really nice to finally feel like the show is like building some narrative momentum. You yeah, know? yeah. Instead, I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know, uh, okay, episode one, pretty rough, two and three, okay, ooh, four, five, and six, like some of the, some good moments and there's some pretty good crown, seven, eight, and nine, this is like the crown at its best. I'm like, where was this, where were these episodes all season? So of course, they're going to save the best for last, right? Season five, episode 10, decommissioned. Have you been wondering where the Royal Yacht Britannia is? Have you been in your heart yearning for more Britannia coverage? I mean, this is this is like one of the worst episodes of The Crown ever, I think. Like purely because it basically rehashes virtually the identical points to episode 1 of this season. And episode 1 already was had already worn out its welcome. Like episode one already was one of the worst episodes. And it's like, guess what? We're going back to that plot line again. We're adding virtually nothing new. Infuriate, absolutely infuriating. So, no, okay. yeah, I agree. It, it's like a copy paste of episode one, but with some like more Dodi Fayad sprinkled in. So, episode 10, decommissioned. We're returning to the Fayad family for the first time since episode three. Dodie, now living in Malibu, is dating a model named Kelly. He brings her to Europe to meet his father, Muhammad, who we last saw in episode three. Muhammad, of course, wants Dodie to have a more strategic message, uh, marriage to a family with social standing, but Dodie proposes regardless. Meanwhile, the queen celebrates her birthday because everyone needs to be reminded that she's old. She meets a strikingly young new prime minister, Tony Blair, but rejects his newfangled ideas for furnishing the royal family with a yacht. That means the Britannia will definitely be retired, and we see the Queen bid farewell to the ship. Charles goes to a ceremony marking the handover of Hong Kong from the UK to China, himself meeting with Tony Blair on the Britannia, which is on its last journey. Charles brings up again a little more... um, I'm sorry. Charles again brings up a little more lightly treasonous conversation, but it goes nowhere, just like the John Major conversation at the beginning of the season. Back home, it does earn him a scolding from the Queen because he's, you know, he's not supposed to really meet with the Prime Minister on his own. But hey, at least Diana is going on a yacht and shopping. 
as we previously learned, is her idea of a vacation. Because Diana runs into Mohammed Fayed and he suggests she vacation in Saint Tropez on his yacht. The season ends with Diana packing for the holiday. This is gonna go great. So that's episode ten. I mean, the 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 Dodi and Mohammed Fayed stuff is like pretty interesting. I like the dynamic at the dinner table when they're talking in a different language than the women and um, and that's always like a painful, awkward, uncomfortable dynamic. Um, and I thought it was rendered pretty well on the show. Tony Blair in the show, it's very similar to like Margaret Thatcher, like Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher in the sense that uh, it oh, always worse. felt like a weird. It's like the JFK always... depiction. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. But he's played by Bertie Carvel and like. I, I, what it feels like is like this is a guy who's doing a Tony Blair impression the whole time. I'm never like, oh, that's Tony Blair. I'm like, that's a guy doing a Tony Blair impression. Um, just in the terms, of the way he like holds his mouth and like talks in the you know the accent and everything. It's just it's pretty ridiculous in my opinion. Um, didn't love it. So anyway, what did you think, Joy? Well, I agree with you about the Blair depiction. I was hoping that. I was looking forward to Tony Blair showing up because it's a big change to finally have a labor government. And he is iconic of a certain late 90s optimism heading into the millennium. But like, ugh, it wasn't it was pretty hammy. I agree. Um, I I felt like the Dodi and Mohammed pieces were among the stronger portions of this episode. And then everything having to do with Britannia and saying goodbye to Britannia. I, I Look, it really did mean something to the queen, I understand, but it was so heavy-handed the first time around, and I had hoped we had left it behind. But like carriage racing, we got more of it. So um, I, I'm okay with it, except for the part where they continue to show Charles agitating from more of a place or maybe even an early ascension to the throne. And that just feels so unbelievable to me from real life, but also from the character we've seen in The Crown, who is so dutiful and serious. Um, I just don't think he's like a reformer chomping at the bit to just get reforming already. And he's shown 15 times that way in the season, and it just never strikes me as believable. So it was a tough mm-hmm. way to end the season for me. Yeah. Totally. Well, we have a few more thoughts on the season five, episode 10 of the show. But before we wrap up, there are, are a couple of things I want to mention. Um, I, I want to say, uh, first of all, uh, like people might be wondering, are, you know, is this the last episode we're going to record about The Crown? It has been announced that the Harry and Meghan documentary is going to be released on Netflix in December. Um, so later this month. And... I would say it is distinctly possible that Joy and I will watch it and discuss it for Decoding TV. So um, I, I hope you enjoyed you know, the coverage of uh, The Crown and, and know that there might be more of it on the way. Um, but the other thing I just want to say before we like end, you know, conclude our discussion of episode 10 is just like, um, uh, is just to acknowledge that Joy has done a massive uh, quantity of research and work uh, for this podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, I, I see the download numbers. I know like, um, you know, many thousands of people have downloaded and hopefully have listened to the episode. But I wanted to say a big thanks to Joy because, you know, I, I found it very fascinating to learn about how accurate the show is. And um, and I appreciate all the work you put into it. So thanks. Thank you. You can take me um, on your yacht in San Tropez anytime. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't have one, but I appreciate the thought. So 
going back to episode 10, uh, speaking of all the research you've done, any accurate, anything else you want to mention about how accurate um, this episode was? I mean, I had a sharp inhale of breath when this episode opens with Dodi Fayed. You know, buying a house in Malibu, okay, that made sense to me. But then we meet Kelly um, Fisher, I believe is her last name, his um, girlfriend. And I wasn't sure. There are a lot of important folks in, like Fergie is one, Tiggy Leg Bork is another, who are important in this um, run-up. In, in what in in what would have been like the time period of this season of the crown in real life that we don't really get much indication of but she was not someone i thought would get prominent placement yeah um and she's it's like really, she's like one of the main characters in this episode yeah and it's really set up that the relationship with diana that dodi is going i mean is this a spoiler I would say let's avoid some of these details. I, I mean, it's I don't think it's a spoiler to know that Dodie ends up with Diana. Like that's very, pretty widely known, right? Well, then so, it's going to hurt someone, right? Yeah. That this occurs. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it really is true that she claims that they were engaged, and that's a thing we see sort of as a a brief scene in this. Yeah. Um, and I'll guess I'll save more on that for later. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, because things we're entering a very, very painful, chaotic, and packed three, four, five weeks of uh, that I assume will be covered in the first one to two episodes of next season, mm-hmm. unless they find a way to like bring in more carriage racing. Um, so. It, even though there are like a few shortcuts taken, like Mohammed Fayed was actually a little bit more friends with Diana along the way than it looks like because he just sort of waves at her across like the, the ballet theater and they have dinner together. So it, it makes it seem like she's just kind of alone all the time and rekindles this friendship. Um, you know, I think that um, largely this episode is is basically right. Um, and even down to some details, like <laughs> when Prince Charles went to Hong Kong, he really did have to fly business class instead of Tony mm. Blair and the other, you know, government officials got to fly first class. And he really did fume about it. He wrote about it in um, a journal that was private that then got basically kind of leaked slash sold to the press, you know, quite a bit mm. later. So that's how they have mm. that information. Yeah. It's like when uh, Connor Roy in Succession is like, we had to fly scheduled. And that was a very, that's a huge indignity for Connor Roy, you know? So. Well, actually, so he was in a, a double-decker plane. You know how they have mm-hmm. those planes that have a little bit of a cabin up top? And he yeah. was in the top part, and he's like, I don't understand why the seat is so uncomfortable. And then he <laughs> came to realize it's because it was called club class as opposed to first class. Mm, mm. Indeed. Okay. Anyway. So any other thoughts on this episode specifically? Uh and if not, we can we can move to wrap up the whole season. No, but I, I definitely have thoughts on the season. Yeah. So let, let, let's get to the end of the season, season five of the crown. Um pretty mixed bag, I would say. Mixed bag at best. Um there were some highs. The the Martin Bashir stuff was top tier crown, like some of the best stuff the crown has done. Um, and then Apatia House is like a pretty cool 
standard episode of the crown that like didn't really feel like it belonged in the season. Um, but in many ways it feels like this season for me was a reaction to both season four and the, and, and the backlash slash reaction season four. Right. It was like, it was like Peter Morgan, the, the creative voice behind the crown saying, Hey, guess what guys, I don't need princess Diana to make a season of the crown. I can just do my own thing. You know, I can just keep doing my, I can keep making the crown like, uh, and princess Diana is barely in this one. Of course they use princess Diana in like 99% of the marketing for the show, but she's, she's only in meaningfully like half of the episodes. Um, but it felt like him saying, you know, like, I don't need Princess Diana to make a show. Like I can look uh, Russian ancestors and such. Like that's interesting still. Um, and separate than that, it's really like makes Charles look great. It makes Camilla look pretty good. It makes Diana look worse than she has in the past. Like it really does feel like, like I think you and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, I'm hoping like, Oh wow. Like, Season four was like almost a death blow to the image of Charles in popular culture. Like season or season, did I say season five? I mean, season four was like a, a almost death blow to the popular image of Charles. Season five could be the coup de grace, right? It could be the coup de grace. Like, uh, let's just finish it off. And like, there's nothing redeemable about this. Um, and instead it pulls back. It's like, Hey, maybe we were too harsh on Prince Charles. I mean, the guy's had a tough life. You know, that's kind of what season five is trying to say. And I think it's a worse show because of it. You know, I think it's just less interesting and less incendiary and in some ways less accurate um, as we've covered on this podcast. Okay. I think That's it's also a lot, it's just shallower when it comes to Charles, you know, like because it's not really believable that he would do these, um, you know, oh, we got to like uh, change the monarchy in this way or that way to modernize it or streamline it. You know, it, it, you don't really get like a sense of his. In, I didn't get a very good sense of his interiority, you know, and to the extent that we get the family dynamics, it feels like we get um, Andrew presenting a singing fish to the queen and her loving that present instead of Charles's handmade painting. And yes, that's like a telling moment, but again, it's at, it feels like at a very surface level and it's things we already knew. So um, unfortunately for Peter Morgan, the best episodes this season either involve Diana or Mohammed Fayed for me. Mm -hmm. And so um, you didn't escape the curse, Peter Morgan. All we care about is Diana. <laughs> Yeah. And that's going to be true. I think probably next season as well. Um, I thought the season overall was pretty uneven. It definitely doesn't have the force of last season. And honestly, I think if they had kept showing Charles in the same way they had, I don't actually think it would have been the coup de grace because I actually felt more that there was a real person I could understand under mm -hmm. Josh O'Connor's yeah. portrayal than Dominic West's. Um, yeah, totally, totally. The other like really, really big thing that I think is just missing, and it's mm -hmm. baffling, is that 
we see Princess Diana. We see all of – there's so many like little tiny touches. Like she wears this Cartier Panther watch and sometimes she wears a Cartier tank watch. These are very famous, you know, pieces she wore. She has Mm -hmm. a Dior bag that's called the Lady Dior. You can still buy – the. you know, if you want to thank me, you can buy me a Lady Dior bag. I think they start at about $4,000. Okay. But don't buy me a Lady Dior bag, please. Mm Mm-hmm. But there are all of these fashion moments that get recreated in her hair and her mannerisms. But where is the part where she goes to Angola and walks through a field of landmines at personal cost to herself, like real personal Mm -hmm. risk, elevating this cause and then helping to lead to a UN sort of accord on which a number of countries have now signed about trying to like – about landmine removal in mm-hmm. sort of post-conflict areas. She does the same thing in Bosnia, or she meets with like landmine survivors in Bosnia in this same time period where we're watching her pack her suitcase for the holiday. All we're getting is the vapid part where she's like, oh my gosh, wasn't he dreamy? I can't even notice that your husband is like in cardiac surgery right now because this doctor was so hot. Um, mm-hmm. Or, I mean, look, oh my gosh, I, my I, phone's I, being bugged. I hate to defend The Crown season five. I really do. But I think I would suggest that like if if I had to put myself in Peter Morgan's shoes, he's like, oh, we already covered the Diana being philanthropic and kind and, you know, good for the world and a person of the people in season four when she like went to the AIDS ward and like hugged children and, did you know, all that stuff. And it's like, we, you know, maybe he felt like there's nowhere else to go storytelling wise with that. Right. Um, well, we see like a tiny bit of it when she visits cardiac patients um, in Hasnat Khan's yeah. hospital. But it's kind of portrayed as she's like using that to basically get to yes. meet him. And so with respect to or, – or, or to Or to deal with her own personal issues. Not necessarily just to meet him. But like she was going through a difficult time and like hanging out with these people, like it seemed like it fed her soul is kind of my sense. But – Yeah. And unfortunately, I think the depiction – that you described like, Oh, we covered it in season four makes it feel like something she left behind and has stopped doing when Mm -hmm, in fact she's mm -hmm. doing more and more of this. And the reason that people love her and that women particularly love her is because of the stuff she does that is courageous in the nineties. And like, I'm slightly like even emotional about this because another thing she did is she fell in love with two Brown men in a row, right? Hasnat Khan and then Dodi Fayed. I don't know if she was in love with him, but you know, we, mm-hmm. they're together. And having gone from the ultra wasp Charles and yeah. com- being brought up in an ultra wasp society that is often quite hostile to immigrants, see exhibit A, Susan Hussey in 2022 comments. Um, the fact that she could see, um, like, beauty and attraction, you know, in different kinds of people. And she like had such a natural way of relating to children and women, particularly around the world. Like it, it just um, completely misses that she was still a magical and inspiring figure. And that is actually part of the cacophony of her loneliness leading up to her death. So, and she can, is still a threat to the, the crown, you know, the, royal system because she's so popular like i i don't know it's just so strange to me this is like not even shown it wouldn't have been that hard to have more of Mm -hmm. it we see her like being photographed as she walks into like a theater or something but like the humanitarian work is what she's best remembered for yeah but i i mean i think that 
the crown and it goes it goes to a good point which is the crown is not a chronicle of all the stuff that happened during this time stuff is only referred to in the crown if it serves the storytelling purpose that they're trying to achieve for that specific episode or for the arc of the show uh, or season right and so it didn't it didn't serve their goals this year to cover diana's good qualities basically you know for whatever reason whether they're reacting to season four or whether he's trying to say like i don't need princess diana to overshadow my show or whatever um but i agree it does it does a disservice to the totality of diana and that's sad you know that's sad well i i i hear what you're saying and it's like oh well if we can recreate her handbags i think we can recreate the fact that she put on like a flock vest and walked through a field with landmines i know you don't agree but yeah well here's what i'll say yeah jemima khan who i've discussed before in the preview episode was lady Di's actual friend she was living in pakistan when Di made a number of trips to pakistan because she was married to imran khan who then later became the prime minister i mean you can google jemima khan if you want to understand Mm -hmm. more about her she Started dating. She became a consultant to the season of The Crown. Started dating Peter Morgan, um, which was very messy um, because he was dating Gillian Anderson at the time, uh, who he had cast as Margaret Thatcher. But anyway, mm-hmm. they break up, and on her way out the door, she issues this release that says, "Season five of The Crown. I'm quitting because it's not doing honor to Diana's memory." And I don't know what happened in their breakup. And I don't know if that was just like bitter words from an ex. But Jemima Khan, I'm going to plus one your sentiment. All right. They did not show the Diana that people know and love at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a really missed opportunity and does a disservice to her memory in a way that season four did not. You know, season four, I thought was like. Very reasonable depiction of Diana, you know? Um, so anyway, what have we learned, Joy, at the end of the day? Um, I love saying Jemima Khan's name, so <laughs> I will just do it at every turn. Uh, and so what we've learned is that I'm on Team Jemima. Um, I also have learned that, yet again, this show is willing to end at a very abrupt point odd Mm -hmm. moment um, that doesn't even feel particularly consequential as a cliffhanger and requires you to know things in real life about why this even is a cliffhanger. But okay, I think we know where the beginning of season six will go. If you don't know about like Dodie Fayette and Princess Diana, it like makes no sense why they would end here basically. Right. Like, um, but most, most people do know that information. So yeah. Um, But the track is laid for season six to include Things about her relationship with the Fayads, how vulnerable she is. Um, Now having, she said several times that she's declined police protection. So physically Mm -hmm. vulnerable. Um, She's going on a yacht to Saint-Tropez. And um, she's very paranoid and there are a lot of conspiracy theories about what might happen to her. Yeah. Those are all, I think, uh, clearly previewed. What a journey it's been. We hope you've enjoyed our conversations about The Crown Season 5. And again, a huge thanks to Joy for all of her work preparing for these episodes, um, writing a lot of the scripts for these episodes, and uh, 
uh, and just doing a lot of research to see how accurate a lot of this stuff was. And um, again, if you uh, do enjoy it, you know, feel free to give us a comment or uh, leave us a review in Apple Podcast. Become a member of uh, DecodingTV.com. Become a paid member and uh, support shows like this one. And uh, again, you can find us at uh, podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and find us on TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at decodingtv. Joy, thanks again. I hope you enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yes. And uh and thanks to everyone who's listened. We really appreciate it. Uh we will probably be back for the Megan and Harry documentary. If it is interesting and good and worth talking about, we will be t- discussing it. Um, but otherwise, uh we will see what happens next season of The Crown. Who knows when that's gonna come out? Probably next year is my guess, right? 20, um, late I think they principal photography like a couple months ago. So my guess yeah. is in about a year. Yeah. All right, folks. Until then, thanks for listening to Decoding TV. We'll see you later.